Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Matt Taibbi about Hate, Inc. First, wanted to let you know that you can check out booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. And for the latest on this show, follow us on social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Books on Pod. This is Catherine Gale. I'm the co-author of The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. You're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Matt Taibbi is a writer formerly with Rolling Stone whose work can now be read through Substack at taibbi.substack.com. He's also a New York Times bestselling author. His most recent book is the one we're discussing today. It's called Hate, Inc., Why Today's Media Makes Us Despise One Another. Matt, thanks for the time. How you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing, Trey? I am great. So this book has obviously been really well received by the general public. Just to let you know, when this got scheduled a week ago, which was less than a week after the paperback came out, I literally couldn't find a copy in Austin. Barnes and Noble was sold out. Book People was sold out. So I had to buy it on Amazon. I'm curious, though, have you received positive feedback from within the most complicit media circles that you've called out in this book? (laughs) Actually, yeah. When I first published this book, it was actually a couple of years ago. And I think a lot of these problems were, um, they were there, but they were a little bit less pronounced and a little bit less obvious than they are now. So in the time since the book has come out, I think there have been a lot of discussions within the business about this. And what was kind of more theoretical a couple of years ago, now everybody talks about. So yeah, I've actually surprisingly had a lot of good feedback within the business about this. That has to feel pretty good. And your perspective really shifted in your late teenage years when you read Manufacturing Consent by Ed Herman and Noam Chomsky, of course. How did this book change the way that you thought about journalism at the age of 19 or so? So I had grown up in journalism my whole life. My father was one. My stepmother was in journalism. My godparents were journalists. So I I had this image of from watching my father, especially, that basically just journalists did their job. There was no political consideration in the work. And what manufacturing consent talks about is the sort of unconscious shaping process that goes on in the business before you even get to report on something. So when I got into the job myself, you know, I saw it very quickly that that's exactly how it works. So if you want to pitch a certain story, you'll find that editors will be very enthusiastic. If it's Going the wrong way, they will find ways to either non-respond or direct you in in some other way. And also they'll bounce you out of the business if you just persistently have the wrong ideas. So it's not like Soviet Russia where they mark up your copy and say no. (laughs) It's more of of a silent guiding system. How they just uh, eventually box you out. As the title of this book suggests, they are really trying to elicit a response out of viewers and a negative response at that. When and why did news go from simply reporting a propagandized version of the facts to trying to draw this emotional response? Well, one of the things I'm talking about in the book is how the journalism business is suddenly under a lot of financial pressures that it never had before. A lot of that is because of the internet. If you work in media, obviously, you know, the bulk of advertising is taken by Facebook and Google and companies like that. They've essentially cleaved off our major revenue source. And as a result, media companies are much more desperate to find ways to make money than they used to be. So we were looking around and looking at the models that work. And the one of them that's the most obvious is the one that I think that Fox pioneered, which was 
let's pick an audience, a demographic, and kind of dominate it by feeding it news that we know that they're going to like, and rather than going for the whole audience. So really the name of the game now is you pick a political demographic or an age demographic, and you feed them things that you know they're going to stimulate them, upset them, engage them. Typically, that's negative news about some group. That's the easiest way to do it. But that's the strategy. It's not just Fox doing it every now. It's it's really everybody that does that. And, you know, there are a couple of big camps that do it left, sort of left and right. But it, there are smaller pockets as well. You spell out 10 rules of hate, which is how the media can most effectively elicit disdain from their viewers. And it includes number three, hate people, not institutions. What do you mean by that? So... The media really doesn't like stories that are about systemic institutional problems because that always works its way back to the viewer ending up having some fault in the problem, probably because they voted for this or that program. They don't like to do stories about things that are kind of omnipresent, continual uh, issues like central banking or military spending or things like that. They like to do stories about something that's a partisan problem that's the fault of one party or another or one person or another. That way you can personalize it, direct people's anger in in a direction that's away from them. And it sort of externalizes the anger. But anything that makes people look inward is bad in media. And so we try to avoid that as much as possible, which is why we we tend to avoid those kinds of ruthless self-examination type stories. Number six is a special one for me, Matt, because I've spent most of my career in sports journalism. Number six (laughs) is Root Don't Think. How has news coverage become more like the way networks cover sports? You know, that's kind of amazing. If you're a sports fan, you're probably familiar with like the NFL Sunday countdown format, right? So you have the host is on one side of the set, and then there's usually a, a set of commentators Usually it's one that sort of represents the viewpoint of each team or sort of hypes the the chances of one team versus another. It's always this kind of binary argument. Sports is a great format for making money because you have audiences of rooters who are deeply invested in the outcome of something. And all you have to do to really deliver a product that's winning is have a contest where people fight over something and you can talk about who won and who lost. Politics has really turned into that same format. We do the same thing that you do on Sunday Countdown on election night. The sets look exactly the same. The crawls look the same. There's the same kinds of statistical analyses. We do the same sort of gambling analyses where people come on and talk about whose chances are better in the upcoming election. I mean, I covered elections and we cover it exactly the same way that people cover sports because it's a predictable, bankable format that works for companies. Well, I feel like after 2016 also, you saw the sports media take some cues from the political world as well, where they were starting to show more informational graphics and statistics and probabilities and things like that. It's funny now watching it because politics has gotten so good. The political coverage has gotten so good at inflaming and engaging the, the viewer with all kinds of stuff on the screen. Like if you, you know, you watch the average Fox or MSNBC broadcast, it's got so much stuff on it graphically all the time, different boxes, people talking, uh, you know, in, in different directions, always numbers everywhere. Sports is actually behind at this point. They have to kind of catch up to all of the new engagement strategies that the TV news business has, has discovered in the last five or six years, especially uh, when they've taken over such so much market share. I love how you point out that some of the most popular faces in the political media while not dumb, are also not necessarily critical thinkers. (laughs) Past or present, who is the best example of this in your mind? 
Gosh, I mean, I I think you know people like Thomas Friedman is is always a, a great example for me. Like, it's interesting because the proverbial pundit, the one that's going to do the best for media companies, is not somebody who's a terribly independent thinker because that person is always going to turn off a certain segment of the population. You want somebody who has ideas that sound smart but really aren't and really aren't that challenging. Gives the appearance of being you know sort of a dignified moral person, but there's not a whole lot there. And the pundits for a long time, they used to configure themselves after like a, somebody who would put their arm around you at a bar and kind of tell you the secrets of life, right? But it was never sort of high, high class intellectualizing that went on in these papers because real ideas always cut pretty deep and they can't afford to do that because anything that even potentially loses audiences is a no-no. Speaking of putting their arm around you at a bar, what is the beer test? When did it start? And why is it such a great example of how media coverage during elections has utterly failed us? The beer test is one of the most amazing things, I think, in American politics. So it was in either 1999 or 2000 that Sam Adams did a commercial and it was a promotional thing where it was they were basically asking which candidate would you rather have a beer with, Gore or Bush? And it was an ad. It was designed to sell beer, basically, right? But Reporters picked up on it and they realized, well, wow, this is a great way to judge, to talk about the candidates in a way that has nothing to do with actual politics. It doesn't get into the issues. And for years, for a long time, I think in the pre-Trump era, a lot of what we did when we were talking about politics was try to come up with phony metrics like that and decide which candidate was better according to the press's idea of who was the most ordinary person who would do better with security moms or soccer moms or some silly thing like that. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's amazing that the, the beer test actually became, you know, a major factor in American politics. You had Barack Obama being asked about his beer preferences and saying he was going to work on it. Within a couple of election cycles, it turned into a, an actual serious thing. Another one of those absurd talking points is likability. What are the likability Olympics and why did they backfire so badly with the 2016 presidential election? So again, I covered elections and I started to realize after a while that there are basically two things going on in the campaign plane. In the front, you had the financial dynamic where the candidate was trying to raise money from big donors. And that kind of person had there was a certain level of moral flexibility, let's say, right? They're promising policy favors in exchange for cash. In the back of the plane, the press needed to get eyeballs, subscriptions, hits, ratings, and they needed a candidate who was going to do the best for them in terms of that dynamic. Likeability to me, I think, is just the candidate who best combines those two qualities, who's morally flexible enough to raise money, but is also a, a big enough hit on TV to raise money. And that's the person that the press would always judge to be the most likable. It was the person who was not an idealistic politician, but was also a good performer on television. And what backfired in 2016 was that Trump was great on TV. He did, he did great for everybody ratings wise. He just happened to be, you know, insane, which was unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, you have been covering presidential elections and rankling members of the media and getting kicked to the very back of planes since about 2004 when you were covering John Kerry's run. Why do you think of John Kerry when you think of oranges? <laughs> So the press had such a hard time finding a human angle with Kerry. Uh, and we used to talk about it. I remember in the planes, the journalists would say things like, there's just there's no angle here. He's so boring. And he did this one thing that people thought was interesting. When the plane was taking off, 
he would roll an orange back to the press section down the aisle of the plane and the reporters would all stumble over each other, grab the orange and roll it back to him. <laughs> they called it orange baseball. And that was the way that the press sort of had a human connection with Kerry. And a whole bunch of the reporters were completely knocked over by this and thought he was so interesting after that. And if you look back, you'll find there are mentions of it in, lo- in lots of the Kerry profiles. And I guess to these points we've been making over the last few minutes now, uh, there were two of the more soul-sucking members of the press that went Rocky three, but with basketball for the 2012 election. How so? Mark Halper and, and Hal- John Heilman. They were kind of the arch priests of conventional wisdom for a long time. These guys... Uh, Halperin came up with this thing that was kind of central to our understanding of what electability was about. He came up with this theory of the Gang of 500, which was there were 500 influential lobbyists and media people in Washington, and whoever they decided would be president, that person would be president. And for uh, for a long time, the whole press corps used to watch Halperin as kind of an oracle uh, who would pick out who would be the real candidate, whichever way the wind blew, whichever he was leaning, the reporters would start hyping up that candidate. And Halperin and uh, and Heilman, I remember when Obama, it was said that he was doing badly versus Romney and that he had lost his mojo. And then I think they covered him playing basketball or something. And they started talking about how no one who's ever seen him play basketball could ever doubt his competitiveness. Of course, it has nothing to do with being a politician, policy or anything. But that's just the way we used to cover politics. We would look for these little things that had nothing to do with anything, and we'd build stories out of it. Philadelphia Eagles just hired a guy who was apparently playing rock, paper, scissors with potential draft picks <laughs> to uh, gauge how competitive they are. I saw that. <laughs> that's great. It's the same thing. So insane. <laughs> yeah. So the final tally in U.S. presidential elections is usually really close, and that does defy logic. Do you have a good explanation for why this is the case? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Noam Chomsky once said that the only way that American elections make sense is if something were completely random. Like if pe- if you ask people to pick who the president of Mars should be, you would probably get 50.1 versus 49.9. <laughs> that That's the only time that these results should ever make sense because, you know, the reality of, of American politics is you have a tiny portion of the country that makes a ton of money and then there's a vast kind of underclass the results should reflect the varying circumstances of the country. Instead, we've kind of nudged people into these categories that have remained kind of statistically balanced over the years. And I think it's kind of an artificial representation of reality. The thing that's closer to me was always like the Occupy Wall Street definition, which is, you know, 1% versus 99%. But we try to avoid that in our characterizations. Chapter 8 of Hate, Inc. is titled How Reading the News is Like Smoking and Comparing how you get the news off of your cell phone to a cigarette. That was brilliant, Matt. It was one of my favorite parts of this book. But you also write that if news had a warning label, it would read something like this in all caps. The news is a consumer product. What do you mean and why is it important for people to understand this? Yeah, it's so funny because Americans have a lot, a very uh, sophisticated consumer sensibility about almost everything else, right? You know, if you think about a candy bar, you know, people will immediately look to see how many calories are, are in it. They know when they smoke a cigarette that it's bad for your lungs. When they get into a car, they will worry about how many miles to the gallon it is, what it puts into the air, how safe it is for your kids to drive. But the news is also a consumer product. We're, we're basically selling your attention to an advertiser. So the thing that you're reading 
is a product that's designed basically to try to engage you for as long as possible. It's something that we're basically selling you for money. Even free media, people don't realize it, but they do pay for it ultimately in the enhanced prices for the products that are buying the advertising. And you have to understand that there's these products that you're acquiring from these companies, they have a cost too. It's I think it's bad for your brains in the same way that saturated fats are bad for your cardiovascular system or or smoke is bad for your lungs. But we just don't think of it in terms of that because most people have been conditioned to think that news is a public service and not a business, but it's, it's a huge business. It's a billion dollar business. And one of the great ironies with all of that is that even if they wanted to and they don't, the media could not truly inform the public on what's going on because things are really complex. Even seemingly simple things are more complex than listening to a a 10-minute piece or reading a long piece about a particular subject. Is there a good solution for both the media and consumers with regards to trying and informing yourself while understanding that you're not necessarily going to become an expert after a day or two? I think that's a huge problem. It was a big problem in in my career because... You know, in addition to covering politics, I, I, I spent a long time covering, say, the financial services industry, where the challenge for a reporter is, well, how do you explain something like the 2008 crash? Well, there's no way to do it unless you tell people what a mortgage-backed security is and how those are constructed, what a credit default swap is, what a collateralized debt obligation You can't do that in a minute on television. It's just not possible. People have to have the attention span to fight through five or 6,000 words to get there. And the problem with the way modern media is constructed is that it's designed to make people only receive information in bursts of a few seconds here or there. And we're steadily whittling away the attention spans of people to the point where they can't really digest complicated stories anymore. In fact, we're usually working backwards. We're starting with the premise of, well, what side of an issue do we want people to be riled up about? rather than, you know, what's the entire sort of global picture of a problem. And we're training audiences not to be able to see the whole problem because it makes them too hard to engage in the way that we normally try to engage them. Well, you also poignantly write that both sides are usually, and I'm putting both in quotes here because so many of us exist in the gray area and aren't properly represented, but both sides are usually trying to present the facts or at least a version of the facts that best fit their narrative, but there is an exception that neglects all of this, and it's something that you label the factual loophole. What is it, and are there common elements that spur on these moments, and are there specific stories that receive this treatment more than the others? Yeah, so the big loophole in media where you see, like I think, the worst abuses, the biggest factual problems have to do with national security stories. With almost anything else, reporters have the ability and also the inclination, incidentally, to chase down the facts themselves, right? So if you do a a story on prison reform or sentencing disparities or whatever it is, the reporters can check that stuff out. But if the head of the CIA calls a major newspaper and says, oh, yeah, by the way, yesterday all of our spies went dark in Russia and we, we lost contact with all of our people... How are you going to check that? There's no way to check that, right? So the only source of information that you have most of the time is the government source. And usually that person is anonymous and you're just relying on them to tell you the truth. Very often, if you read these national security stories in the paper, you'll see that they're sourced to one or two or three people. 
And often what happens is you're getting a high level intelligence source who calls you and says, oh, by the way, if you want to confirm that you can talk to these other people, it's usually somebody like in a congressional committee who's heard the same information from the same place. And as a result, you consistently get these stories that turn out to be factually sideways. We know whether it's the WMD thing. I think there's a lot of issues with the Russiagate story. We just saw the Afghan bounty story kind of unravel a little bit. You know, that was a big deal last year. Everybody ran with that, but it, you know, it was anonymously sourced. How do you check that? And that's a big problem because it's especially bad if people in the business no longer have the inclination to be suspicious about those stories, which I think is, is kind of the trend right now. Well, I think the most publicity that this book has gotten is the great job that you did running down why the Iraq WMD story was such BS, and then also the correlation to Russiagate as well. And it seems like a pretty case-closed deal at this point, but I was checking your Twitter last night, and you're still dealing with these yahoos who just want to continue putting their head in the sand, but speak so emphatically in doing so. It's just, it's frustrating beyond belief to me that you can present all the facts to somebody and still have them just deny, deny, deny. Yeah, the Russia thing has been uh, very distressing for me personally, just because I thought that there was a significant contingent within the business that would always balk at a story once it had gone south, right? So for instance, even during at the absolute height of the WMD madness, there were a lot of reporters who were talking amongst each other saying, you know, I don't know about this, right? And then the instant it kind of went sideways, there were calls to have an, a public accounting. The watchdog agencies were doing a public reckonings, but that hasn't happened, I think, with this story, probably because there's a perception that if we do that, it's going to help Trump in some way. But really, I think the impact of that story is just to undermine the credibility of the media in general. When people see us getting stuff wrong and not apologizing for it, it, it just makes us look really bad. Considering the past year has been maybe the worst example of crisis management in human history, have you detected <laughs> any of these things with the media's coverage of COVID? So, yes, we've had a lot of problems with the coverage of COVID. And it's the same problem of kind of taking a story and carving it into storylines that are going to be acceptable to one or the other demographic. I think what happened with COVID early on is that, you know, this was taking place in the context of Trump. So we had sort of pro-Trump media and anti-Trump media. And the storyline very early on settled on the idea that everything that sort of heightened the idea that this was a serious threat, that was a pro-democratic idea and everything that sort of downplayed the threat or suggested that there might be a cure, that was a pro-Trump story. And the reporters just kind of gathered into camps about that rather than kind of looking at the whole picture and, and realizing that there was probably a little bit of, of everything in, in both stories. So it became completely taboo, for instance, to suggest that it might be safe to walk outside without a mask, but maybe not inside, right? Like we've seen scientists talk about this. Like we don't know exactly what the impact of having a mask on outside is, right? But it's become taboo even to go near that. Same thing with like hydroxychloroquine that was dismissed before where there was even really any investigation of it because Trump had said something nice about it. And then, you know, there were similar abuses kind of on the other side. But science 
isn't really political in the same way that, that we're used to covering. It shouldn't have been like that. The coverage should have been relatively the same in both realms, but it wasn't because we still have this imperative to take sides on things that aren't really bipartisan issues. So we talked a little bit earlier about the correlation between news coverage and sports coverage, and you end up devoting an entire chapter to this, chapter 12, which is titled, How We Turned the News into Sports. And within this chapter is my favorite sentence in the entire book, and I'd like you to expand on that if you don't mind. Sports journalism, especially local sports journalism, is usually pure manipulation. What do you mean by this? I'm from Boston, right? So <laughs> it's, it's, in Boston, sports journalism is easy. The Red Sox are awesome. The, the Patriots are always right. Bruins, the, the Red Sox, et cetera, et cetera. Celtics. And then, of course, all of the other towns are the sort of this embodiment of pure evil and anything that happens in another town that's negative. We hype that to the max. The storylines are automatic. You know, even with the Patriots, when the Spygate thing happened, they were the only people in the country who had the opposite view of what had taken place in that story. But that's the way politics is right now. If your target audience is a Trump enjoying audience, right, you're going to present only the stuff that is favorable to Trump. Same thing, you know, with a with a blue leaning audience like MSNBC, you just never see the bad news about your candidate because you're essentially doing Homer reporting for your political side. And everybody who works in sports knows what that is, right? If you call into a local sports radio, the whole thing is about just sort of riling up fans against each other and that sort of thing. One thing I will say that's different about that is that sports writers do tend to be more aggressive about covering teams than political journalists are about covering politicians. If there's an issue with how the owner is handling the team or how the, if the coach is not performing up to snuff, they'll be really, really aggressive in getting to the bottom of that in ways that, frankly, you know, the political press usually isn't. You were just old enough to remember how the public mourned when Walter Cronkite signed off the nightly news one final time in 1981, and you admit to being pretty flippant about his signature, and that's the way it is to end newscasts. But time has provided you a sort of superficial and existential appreciation for that sign-off. Why? What Cronkite was doing, which I think was really interesting, and remember, he was the most trusted person in America, according to surveys, for over a dozen years in this country. In 1973, I think it was the first time that he earned that designation. And again, in 85 and 86, according to Gallup polls. So he had this incredibly broad appeal to both people on the, the left and the right. And part of it was that I think, you know, with that sign off, what he was doing is he was giving people psychic permission to kind of log off for the night and then go about their business, and then you could return and watch the news again the next day. This was during an era when we still talked about the concept of reading the news, like you could sit down and read the entire newspaper and you were done. The act of following the news was something you did once a day, maybe twice a day. Now it's constant. Now we don't want you to log off ever. If you watch cable news, you'll see that at the end of shows, they typically hand off to the next anchor because they want you to stay on. If you're online, they want you to keep clicking. They will continually send you tweets to keep you engaged. So this idea of the news is something that you can be done with and go back to your life, that's over. So I think looking back, the news was a lot healthier once upon a time. Maybe not intentionally. You know, maybe if they'd had the technology, they wouldn't have done it that way. But I think it was healthier back then. 
I think it was as well. And uh, you make a great point on just being able to tune it out and understanding that, yeah, life is going to go on for the most part that next day, even if you decide to stop paying attention for 10, 12, 14, 16 hours, even an entire day, let's say. Unplugging is very, very healthy. And manufacturing consent, which we obviously talked about a little bit earlier, it's one of the big influences in your life. There's a great conversation between you and Mr. Chomsky at the end of this book that I highly recommend for people. But manufacturing consent originally laid out five filters through which the media operates. Ownership, advertising, sourcing, flack, and organized religion. Chomsky and Herman, their organized religion was an anti-communism sentiment back in the mid-1980s, which is understandable for the mid-1980s. But obviously, that only works for one side right now. So what has replaced anti-communism with this organized religion sentiment in 2021? So I think that's really central to the whole idea of understanding how modern media works, because once upon a time, again, yeah, the organizing religion was anti-communism. So your lodestar for understanding all news stories was we had to place the truth in the context of there being a supreme evil over in Moscow. And so, for instance, if there was a story about communists murdering a priest in Poland, that was totally unacceptable because that was our communist arch rivals. But if we had a similar story about, you know, United States-backed regime in El Salvador also murdering Catholic priests, that story wouldn't appear, right? So that's how you understand where we're going to land on any given issue is its relation to the communist enemy. We don't really have that enemy anymore, right? So even though Russia's beginning to step back into that role, but the media is, has now made it possible for us to see each other as that enemy that Russia once appeared as in the news. So for people who are Democrats or liberal-leaning the center of gravity is Republicans and the right and Trump followers. And it's exactly the same for Republicans on the other side. Like everything, if you turn on Fox News, is going to be about the woke left, liberals, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how we place ourselves is in relation to this domestic enemy who happens to live next door now. It's much more powerful than it was back in the 80s and 90s, where it was some faraway sort of Klingon-like villain. Now there are people that you can see out your window. John Stewart is one of those guys in this book that you frame in a positive light. He's a guy that I think both you and I have a, uh, a very mutual respect for. Have you had the chance to s- sit down with John and speak at length about a number of these issues? I met him a long time ago. I was on the show, I think, twice. I met him at the at, uh, on the set of uh, Colbert a couple of times, too. He played a really important role in the kind of development of the modern news business. If you remember... Back in the 2000s, there was this moment where the public had kind of lost faith in the corporate news business because of the WMD episode. And a lot of people were getting their news from The Daily Show, which was the only place you could go on TV that was kind of going after both sides. It had credibility because of that. It hadn't fallen for a lot of the mist that had gone across cable TV. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that now where people are beginning to tune out the kind of corporate duopoly in news. And they're looking elsewhere. Unfortunately, it's not snappy comedy like uh, The Daily Show, but you see it in the high numbers of viewers for people like Joe Rogan, I think, for instance, right? There's this massive audience that's looking for something that's not quite this and not quite that. And I think he blazed an important trail there. Is seeing the popularity of a show like Joe Rogan, and let's be honest, your popularity as well, does that give you some optimism that we are starting to break this cycle now? 
Yeah, I think, you know, you see Rogan and a lot of other podcasters. And then, you know, there's, I'm on a site called Substack, which is getting a significant amount of audience these days. There are lots of people on Patreon who are doing really interesting things. And that's coming at a time when traditional viewership for cable news stations is, it's not falling off, but trust in those stations is falling off, right? So I think what, what's happening is that some of those stations are seeing bigger market share than they used to, but people are consuming it as entertainment rather than news. So I think what's going to happen eventually is that we're going to have some entrepreneurial innovation that's going to come up with a new news product that isn't a legacy media product. And that's going to attract that audience that's been out there for a while now. All right. We've talked about a lot of serious stuff for the most part over the last 45 minutes or so. I wanted to end with a couple of lighthearted things and then get back to one more serious thing before it's all said sure. and done. You played professional basketball in Mongolia <laughs> in the mid-1990s. I, I heard on Crystal, Kyle, and Friends that they actually referred to you as the Mongolian Rodman. Why did they do so? And please tell me part of that shtick was getting to date Mongolian Carmen Electra during that time. <laughs> Uh, sadly, it didn't. So I played. I played in Mongolia, and I was the only American in this league that was. It was probably like Division Two American level, and I was 25 years old. I wanted to write a book about it, so I was trying to make it very funny. And I had hair back then, so what I was doing was dyeing my hair like crazy colors. And <laughs> the owner used to ask me to get into fights and things like that, so it was a little bit globetrotter like you know wow. i would i would i would pick fights with the, some of the guys in the other teams and so it was it was a lot of fun i was leading the league in rebounding when i left so uh that was part of where that nickname came from but nope. uh, no carbon electra sadly so. <laughs> double digit rebounds per game when you left <laughs> I, I, I think so yes oh that's yeah. awesome and yeah. i think i also heard on that same interview with crystal kyle and friends that you were a part of a russian circus at one point as well is that true <laughs> So I had this thing that I used to do in Russia where I would get jobs in Russian workplaces and then I would work there for a while and then I would write up the experiences. So I worked as a security guard. I worked in a monastery. I worked in the Russian the Moscow Zoo. And then I also worked in what they call the Clown Theater in Moscow, which is a the Teatro Klonadi. It's this place where kids would go and they would there'd be clown theater and clown shows. So I worked as a clown for a couple of weeks, I think three weeks, something like that. And then after that, I ended up spending a lot of time with a, a couple of clowns in particular and traveling around the country with them. I wanted to write a book called Of Clowns of Men, but it never happened. So it was very funny. <laughs> what was the craziest shit you saw around Russian clowns? Well, the amount of drinking was heroic. I, I've never <laughs> seen anything like that before in my life. It was amazing, but they were very funny guys. They were constantly pranking me. Once in the, we were in the provinces in Russia and they told everybody in the bar that I was an American diplomat. We were far out in the country and that I was an American diplomat and that I was being punished for something and that I had to spend time in this small town, be exiled for a while. So everybody was buying me drinks because they thought I had gotten in trouble with the embassy and I didn't really know what was going on. And they left me on a train track later that night or at a train station. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, but very funny dudes. Wow, that's wild. Thank you for sharing that. And finally, yeah. in the acknowledgement, she writes some really beautiful things about your dad. What do you love about Mike Taibbi? <laughs> My father was, uh, when he had me, he was only 20 years old, and he had already been in the business 
for two and a half years at that point. He was a young newspaper reporter for the Home News in New Brunswick, New Jersey, while he was a student at Rutgers University. And he spent his entire 50-year career in the news business, and he taught me. um, I actually never wanted to be a reporter, but I was always kind of fascinated by his work growing up. And he was, I think if you look him up, you'll find that he had a tremendous amount of respect in the business. He was a sort of great straight news investigative reporter, very good on television. And But he was an incredibly funny guy. And he was really great at the side of the business that was about talking to people. I think that's kind of the lost art in journalism these days is that significantly it's supposed to be about getting to know people quickly and learning what they're all about and what they do for a living and, and what's important to them. And that was what he was really, really great at. He just had this ability to develop a rapport with people quickly. And now, you know, there's a lot of sort of research that happens through links and online. And I think it's the telephone and doing things in person is a lost art that he was great at. So that was what I was trying to tell people about in the book. I think it came across very well. Hey, Matt, thank you so much for the time today. And more importantly, thank you for this book. I think it is one of those things that will continue to open the general public's eyes to this manipulation, this ruse that we've all been dealing with for so long. And hopefully it helps us eventually break the cycle as well. Thank you for everything, man. Thanks so much, Trey. I really appreciate it. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoy this or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, I've made it easy for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to buy it through bookshop.org. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts right now, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.